Galatians chapter 4. We've all heard the term, the power of persuasion. Persuasion is an important tactic in all facets of life. Getting someone to see something the way you do. It's important in sales. It's important in business. It's key in relationships. How many times have you been having a discussion with your spouse and you just want them to see things the way you do. I mean, that's the whole point, right? And the opposite is true as well. They want you to see things the way they do. It's, it's essential in ministry, in evangelism. We go out and we share the gospel and we're trying to persuade people, trying to allow them to see Jesus for who He is and see the Bible for what it is. How paramount is persuasion in parenting? Trying to get your kids to to see things the way you do. So that they don't make really stupid decisions. And as we'll see in our text, persuasion is a powerful form of correction. Paul, as you know, as we've discussed, is correcting the Galatian believers. They have allowed themselves to be deceived. They have foolishly fallen into a works relationship with God where they're not relating to God on the basis of grace and the cross and the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. They're now relating to God on the basis of their own efforts. They're relating to God by their own works. And Paul realizes that all the chewing out in the world is not going to persuade the Galatians. I mean, he's already been doing that in a sense. He's called them foolish. He's called them childish. He's kind of told them what's up. And so here he begins to employ a different style. A style that we would do well to emulate in our efforts to persuade people in our sphere of influence. Paul's style of persuasion is that of connecting with people on a very personal level. If we want people to see things the way we do, we must in turn see things the way they do. Because that's the problem, right? We're, we're over here and we're saying, look, I want you to see from my perspective. And they're over there and they're saying, I want you to see from my perspective. And both of us are stubborn and hard-headed And we refuse to see things the way the other does. And so we just yell at each other from across the chasm that is our difference of opinion. But if we can begin to create a common ground, see, that's what we have to do. And that's what Paul does here. Create some common ground. We need to get inside their head and allow them to get inside ours. We have to form a basis of relating to one another. And Jesus was the master of this style of persuasion. In fact, the very reason Jesus came to the earth was to persuade men by connecting with us, by relating to us. See, Jesus could have shouted from the heavens, Hey, I'm God. Believe in me or you're going to go to hell. But He knew that it was impossible for us to relate to Him. 
just as impossible as it is for an ant to relate to you. You know, have you ever stood over the top of an ant and, th- and just kind of thought what must be going through their mind as you raise your foot to smash them? And of course, they never die the first time. You know, somehow they find their way into the grooves of your shoe or something, you know, and you've got to hit them like 1,300 times before they die. Or have you ever thought what's going through the mind of an ant as like when you were a kid and you're just destroying their little ant hill that took them probably like years to build, you know, one little twig at a time, you know, and you just come along with a stick or something, and, or what I used to do is light them on fire. That was a lot of fun. Put the gas on, you know, woo, and ants are like scattering, and you're wondering what's going through these ants' minds, the little ant mind. They can't conceive of how powerful we are. The Bible says that God rests His feet on the earth. That the earth is His footstool. We can't conceive of how big He is. And that's just a a metaphor. That's just a euphemism for how big He is. That's not even how vast God is. God is a spirit. We can't even conceive of how big He is. He has to put it into human terms that really don't even describe it, but still blow our minds. God just rests His feet on the earth. Jesus came to connect us with God because He knew that it was impossible, not improbable, not unlikely, but impossible for us to relate to God. And so He came and He said, Look, here I am. This is God in human flesh. I want you to relate to me. Touch me. Talk to me. See me. And not only can I relate to you by becoming a man, but I relate to you in that I was tempted in all ways as you are, yet I didn't sin. So we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you realize how awesome of a message that is? Do you remember learning about Greek mythology and all the gods in school and how once in a while the gods would visit earth just to like have fun and just hurt people and destroy and you know and I always thought you know that's pretty harsh I don't want to have a relationship with that kind of a god who just once in a while you know wants to come down and have a party at my expense our god came down And He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And He can relate to us. It's an amazing message that we have to bring to this world. And so Paul, understanding Jesus' style of persuasion, adopts that style as well here. And he adopts this style by connecting with the Galatians in three ways. We're going to see him connect as a pastor. We'll see him connect as a brother. And then finally, we'll see Paul connect as a mother. And so let's begin in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by which nature are not gods. 
But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And so in verses 8 through 11, Paul connects with them as a pastor, very logically, very theologically, doctrinally, he appeals to them. And he says, look, when you didn't even know God, you remember the Galatians were pagan people. They weren't Jews. They lived in that area that is modern-day Turkey. They had settled there from the part of Europe that many of us have descended from, Ireland and Scotland and England. That's where they settled. They're in the, what's now modern-day Turkey. And these people, they were not Bible-believing people. They were not Jewish people. They were pagans. They believed in all these gods that I just spoke about, Zeus and Hermes. In fact, you remember when Paul and Barnabas were there in that area, that when Paul healed a man in Lystra, that they said, look, it must be that the gods have visited us. It's Zeus and Hermes. And they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul's like, look, we're just regular men like you. We've come to tell you about the true God. And so that was their initial thinking right out of the gate was Greek mythology, was multiplicity of gods, was pagan worship. That's their mindset before Paul came to them and shared the gospel with them, shared the truth of the one and true God. He said, you serve those by which nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, and that word known is an intimate knowledge, it's a relationship. It's not just a mental understanding. It's not just intellectual conception. It is an intimate knowledge. Paul says, you came into an intimate relationship with God, or rather are known by God, which is important. Because oftentimes we say, hey, did you find Jesus? It's like, I didn't know he was lost, you know. We, we don't find him, he finds us. And of course the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the reality of it is, unless God puts the even conception in our mind that he exists, we're sunk We have no way to even understand that God exists unless He gives us the faith to do it, to conceive of Him. And so He found us. We were the ones that were lost. He never went anywhere. He found us. And I know that when I came to Christ, I was not looking for Him. He found me. But then there was a point where I had to choose, certainly. But He made me aware of himself. And so Paul clears that up. And he says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? And so Paul is correcting them 
as a pastor. He's persuading them to come back to the simplicity of the gospel. And he says, how is it that you used to be tied up into all of this bondage? You remember you were worshiping all these gods and you had to make little idols and you had to worship certain gods at certain times and you couldn't eat certain things on certain days and you couldn't say certain things and you weren't allowed to harvest certain crops because it might offend this God and you know you couldn't do certain things that might offend another God and it was like just you know you better have a pretty organized system of keeping all of this organized or it's you know death for you and Paul says how is it that you were under that kind of bondage and then when I came to you you were freed from it through Christ but now you've returned to it you've returned to these weak and beggarly elements and that phrase weak and beggarly elements ties into verse 3 where he says that they were under bondage of the elements of the world. Weak and beggarly elements are the elements of the world. It's the base philosophy of man. The basic principles of man. Which is that the way you relate to God is by your own efforts. That's how you relate to God. See, that's the common denominator for any religion. Religion started... In Genesis chapter 10 at the Tower of Babel, it was man's effort to build his way, to work his way to God. And God destroyed that. And He spread peoples throughout the world. And unfortunately, all those people groups and all those different languages took that concept that you can relate to God in your own strength, in your own effort, that you can work your way to God. That's what they brought with them. And so now we have, all over the planet, different religions, but they all basically say the same thing. You've got to work your way to God. Christianity is the only religion, for lack of a better term, that is a relationship. That says, you can't work your way to God. You're completely incapable of doing that. And so He came to you. See, religion is our attempt to work to God. To get to God. Because there's in man a desire to know God. A desire to be accepted by God. Just like there's in children a desire to be accepted by their parents. Until they you know, reach about 13 or 14. Then they don't care anymore. But you know, at a young age, there's this desire to be accepted. You know, and my daughter comes with them. You know, she's not in here. But you know, the most hideous drawings... You know, and it's like, what in the world is that? You know, Daddy, look at this. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, you get really good at lying when you're a parent. You know, oh, that is amazing. You know, that, oh, you are like Picasso. You know, you have talent galore, you know. And they want to be accepted. They, they want your affirmation. And that's what we want from God. But we go about it the wrong way because in our nature, there's this desire to earn, right? It's why we're very uncomfortable. Maybe if you've fallen on hard times and you have to you know, use the Oregon Trail card or have to use food stamps and you're 
you're uncomfortable with that because you don't like to be just handed things. Or it's why, you know, there's sort of that uncomfortableness in line when people are using that because we want to help them. We, we want to give to them, but we know that that's not what they want. That's not what they need. In fact, what they want is to probably be able to do it on their own, but they've become incapable And it's true spiritually as well. How we desire to earn our way to God. And so legalism appeals to our flesh. Legalism appeals to that base philosophy of man that says you can earn your way. You know, God will meet you somewhere there, halfway or so, but you, you've got to kind of do it yourself. We get this relay race mentality you know Jesus runs the first leg and then he hands the baton off to you and and you get to run a leg and and it's this nice little sharing game that we're involved with with God and it's totally bogus and I like to illustrate it with an illustration of three swimmers and they're trying to swim from the East Coast all the way to Europe. It's a long way. Across the Atlantic Ocean. And you have three different swimmers. You have one swimmer who's an amazing athlete, an Olympian, triathlete. I mean, this guy could swim like nobody else. Then you have an average Joe like me that knows how to swim, but, you know, don't put me in any competition you know, I might make it like two laps, and it's all, you know, you, I get like off, you know, like you start on one side of the pool and you end up over here, you know, because there's just no straightness to my swimming abilities. But, so here's average Joe, you know, you could paddle around a little bit, and here's a guy that can't swim at all, and they're going to race. They're going to go to s see if they can make it across to Europe. And so here is the Olympian, the triathlete. The Iron Man, he takes off and he swims an amazing 100 miles. And then he drowns somewhere out in the middle of the Atlantic. And here's average Joe. Here's me. I take off and I swim and I'm giving my effort and I make it a mile. I mean, that's amazing for me. A mile, wow. And then I drown. And here's the guy that can't swim and he barely makes it off the beach and he drowns. And what's the common denominator? None of them made it. They're all shark bait. Now, we look at that and we say, yeah, but the one guy, I mean, he made it a hundred miles. And that's like the guy in this life, the lady in this life who's such a nice person and she helps old ladies across the street and, and he works down at the soup kitchen and they give to save the whales and, you know... They even put a portion of their tax return to go to the, you know, party of their choice on, you know, on their tax return. I mean, these are, these are great people. I mean, these are people that love their country and they're patriotic and he served in the Vietnam War and she used to be a nurse, you know. I mean, these are just amazing people. And then here's the average Joe. You know, he's just a regular guy. He worked a job. He kept his nose clean, he never killed anybody, he didn't rape anyone, 
She didn't abuse her kids. She raised them well. Just average people. And that's like the guy that, like me, can swim but only made it a mile. And then there's the person that barely made it off the beach. They're like the Ted Bundys and Jeffrey Dahmers and Saddam Husseins and Hitlers of our society. That we think, well, they're the ones that are going to hell. See, God's going to take all of our good works and all of our sins. He's going to weigh them out, and we're going to see who makes it. But it doesn't work that way. Because just like the swimmers, nobody makes it. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags, which doesn't say a lot for our sin. Right? If our righteousness is like filthy rags, what's our sin like? I don't even want to know. Because filthy rags is not a real pretty picture, if you understand the Hebrew there. And God says that you can't relate to me on your own efforts. You might swim a hundred miles, but big deal. You drown in the end. And so you have to come through Christ, who was the only one that could swim that distance. He was the one who was perfect. And he said, believe in me, and you'll have eternal life. And so Paul appeals to them as a pastor, very doctrinally, very logically. He says, that they've turned again to the weak and beggarly elements. They're weak and beggarly because the base philosophy of man that you can approach God by your own efforts leaves you weak. It doesn't strengthen you. It weakens you spiritually because it's a tireless effort. It's a futile effort. It's like the horse that's just running around in circles in the corral, you know, and you just sort of step back and just watch the thing working itself up into a frenzy, right? There's nothing that it's accomplishing. It thinks it's working really hard. And that's like us working in our own strength, in our own flesh. We think we're working hard for God. We think we're doing a lot for the Lord, but we're accomplishing nothing. And God says... It's weak. It'll just tire you out. It's beggarly. It's beggarly in that it makes you spiritually poor. You think it's going to make you rich, but it leaves you begging for more. It leaves you looking for a handout spiritually because it's not enough. You're, you're thinking that you're doing a lot and you're earning your way, but you're getting this little wage and it's just like disappears because the debt is so huge. You know, maybe you can kind of relate to that. You know, you've got this huge debt, you know, and you're making a little bit and you're paying off like, you know, a hundred bucks a month. And it's like, you know, you owe somebody $20,000. And it's like, I'm paying a hundred bucks a month, but my finance charges are 110. I'm not going anywhere. Every month I'm going in the hole, $10. This is pointless. And that's kind of what it's like trying to pay off God 
oh, you pay a little bit here, you got some goodness there, got some righteousness here, but it does not fulfill the debt. It leaves you begging. But legalism wants you to think that it's actually making you more like God. It wants you to think that it's drawing you closer to Him. It wants you to think that it's a deeper knowledge, that it's a deeper truth, that it's making you more mature. But in fact, it's doing just the opposite of all those things. And that's what Paul was trying to communicate to them. He said, I can't believe you turned again to these weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years, all these things that you've become in bondage to now. It used to be false religion, paganism. Now, it's the Jewish law. It's the Mosaic customs of the days and the seasons. And and Paul's like pulling his hair out. He's like, are you crazy? He says, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. That word labored is to work to exhaustion. He says, I'm afraid that I've worked myself to exhaustion for nothing. Because you've reverted back to basically an unbeliever. And now Paul in verses 12 through 18 will begin to connect with them as a brother. He started as a pastor, very logical. Now he's going to, in a sense, get down on their level. He's going to connect with them as a brother, as a friend, as an equal. He says, brethren. He's on their level. Brethren, I'm not better than you. I understand what you're going through. I understand this tendency. But man, will you just see what I'm trying to share with you? I love you guys. I have a heart for you. But you're deceived here. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. That's key. It's key in persuasion. He became like them, so that they would become like him. He got down to their level. You remember when he was with them, he said, I became like a Greek when I was with the Greeks. I became like a Jew when I was with the Jews. So that I might win the more. I become all things to all men, Paul says. Not so that he could be like a politician not so that he could win the approval of the masses, but so that he could persuade people for the gospel. And he says, I became like you. Now I want you to become like me. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, when I was with you, do you remember me like being all caught up in the law? Do you remember me worried about Sabbaths and festivals? Paul was with them for a long time on a few different occasions. He says, do you remember me refraining from eating certain kinds of foods? Or did I just sit down with you and and eat whatever was put before me? Do you remember me worried about new moons and jubilee years and all these types of things? He says, no. Because you weren't worried about it. 
I just gave you Jesus. And now these Judaizers have come in, and they've given you a deeper truth. They've given you, in their description, a better knowledge. And in fact, it's taken you away from God. It's got you bound up in legalism. Paul says, I want you to become like me, free from all that stuff. He says, you have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. When Paul came to Galatia, it was unintentional. It was because he had contracted some kind of serious disease. He wanted to go on to Macedonia. That's where more people lived. That's where the influential cities were. Paul ultimately wanted to get to Rome. You know, you can imagine. If you were, you know, headed for Portland, you probably, you know, wouldn't want to get sidetracked too long in Madras. You know, and that's what was happening. Paul's like, I came to you kind of unintentionally. I really wanted to get over there where I could have more influence and lead more people to Christ, but I came to you because I was unable to go any further. And we don't know what kind of disease Paul had. Some believe it was malaria that he had contracted in the area that he was at before uh, Galatia that was known for that disease. Probably, and what seems to fit more with the context, is that Paul received some type of an eye disease. Because he says, you were even willing to pluck your eyes out and give them to me. And then at the end of the letter, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing with, because his eyes were all messed up. And if he did have this eye disease, it would have been an eye disease that was very conspicuous. He would have had, you know, ooze coming out of his eyes. It would have been very obvious. And so Paul says, I came to you with an infirmity, and yet you brought me in. And my trial, verse 14, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, I came stumbling in to your neck of the woods, short, hunched over, history tells us, pus oozing out of my eyes. I wasn't looking that impressive. I come in like that, and I'm saying, hey, Jesus loves you. And, you know, they're probably thinking, yeah, it looks like it's working for you, buddy. You know? <laughs> That's what I want, whatever you have, you know? I'll take a double portion. And he comes stumbling in, and yet they received him as an angel, as even Jesus himself. And Paul's saying, why would you have received me in that condition and, and heard what I said and, and been persuaded by me and now you've turned your back on me? What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Isn't that the way it is sometimes? 
with people that you love and you care about and you tell them the truth and all of a sudden you're their arch enemy. All of a sudden they forget about all the past relationship that you've had. And Paul is trying to remind them of the relationship that he did have with them. He says, you received me in my worst time with pus oozing out of my eyeballs. I was sicker than a dog and yet you received me and loved me. And I was, you were persuaded by me to receive Christ. And now all of a sudden, because I'm challenging this doctrine that you've bought into, now I'm your enemy. And it's sad when that happens, but we have to speak the truth anyway and not worry about the repercussions of how people might think about us and what they might say about us and the relationships that might be ruined as a result at least temporarily. I mean, how many parents try to be their kids' friends instead of just telling them what needs to be said because they're worried about being an enemy? They want to be cool, you know? They want to be the hip mom and dad that all the kids love. And, you know, yeah, well, at least they all come over and they get drunk at our house. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. You know, that's, that's awesome. You know, at least they hang out with us. And, you know, at least, you know, he's protected. You know, I... Gave my son the protection, and that's all that really matters, you know, and, and, and we're cool with that. I mean, that's just ludicrous. It's an appeal from parents to try to win friendship instead of guiding and directing their parents or their kids through this life. But we're afraid that, that we might be an enemy, and you know what? You might be an enemy. You start out as like a hero. You know, I'm my kid's hero right now. You know, I can do no wrong. Daddy can fix anything. Caitlin's soon to find out that is not true. You know, that I can fix very little. I can, can't even fix my own breakfast. You know, she's going to find out pretty soon. But, you know, as kids grow up, I remember myself. You get into those adolescent years, you know, you start to become a man or a woman. You start to be a free thinker. And all of a sudden, mom and dad are the stupidest people on the planet for a time. And they're your enemy. And I remember my mom just being like, you know, I brought you into this world and I can take you out, you know. I changed your diapers. When do you, since when do you think you're so smart? You know, I've made it this far. You don't know a thing, you know. And I remember my dad just, just pulling his hair out, you know, so frustrated because of, you know, the pride you know, that just wanted to see it my own way, and I can do my own thing, you know. And then there's a point where in your early 20s, all of a sudden, you realize your parents learned a lot in five or six years, you know. <laughs> but you might be an enemy for a time, but you'll be a hero in the end. And that's what matters. We have to, to say what needs to be said. Leave the repercussions to the Lord. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. And so, they zealously long for your attention and for your favor. They're drawing people to themselves, is what Paul is saying here. And that's what false religion, that's what false teaching always does. It draws people 
to a man, to an organization. It makes you dependent upon some publication, upon some person who's going to tell you how you can relate to God. And how many people are dependent upon a man? You know, we've got to go talk to this guy. He's going to tell us. Or we've got to wait for the monthly publication to come out and it's going to tell us how to think and what to say. And you know, it contradicts last month, but that's okay. You know, they're, they're next to God. And what they say goes. And they are drawing people away. They zealously court you. They zealously try to lead you not to Jesus, but to themselves. Not for good. They want to exclude you. See, that's what false teaching does. It excludes you. It isolates you. It says, we want you for ourselves. We're the only way. Don't associate with other people. Don't talk to to other people. They don't see things the way we do. Don't let your kids play with that riffraff over there. You know, they're different than we are. They're going to hell, you know. And they isolate and they exclude. And they draw people away for their own purposes. Paul says it's good, verse 18, to be zealous, but only in a good thing. I want you to be zealous. And not only when I'm present, but when I'm absent as well. I don't want you to zealous for the Lord when I'm there. I want you zealous for Jesus when I'm not there. But I don't want you zealous for this false stuff. You've been deceived. And so Paul appeals to them. He connects with them as a brother. He gets down to their level. Much like a parent might have to get down to the level of their child to help them to see from their perspective. And Paul closes our text by connecting with them as a mother. And that sounds kind of funny seeing that Paul's a man, but it's the metaphor he uses. He says, my little children, verse 19, my little children, my babes in Christ, for whom I labored in birth again, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul's saying, I'm willing to go through labor pains again for you. How many moms would want to go through labor again? You know, but sometimes I bet you a mom would be willing to do that when their kids go astray, when their kids do things and they think, you know what, I wish I could just start over. I wish I could just smash them back down to that little fetus and put them back and start over again, right? How many moms, when their kids get older, say, man, I really screwed up. I wish I could do it over. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm willing to, to birth you again. I'm willing to go through the labor pains again because you've just gone so far off. You've been so deceived. My little children, my babes in Christ. He gets down to their level as a mother. Unconditional love is what He shows them. You know, moms never 
quit loving their kids. doesn't matter what they've done, where they've been. They defend them till the end. They love them till the end. Sometimes to a fault. And Paul, like a mother, is saying, you know what, I don't care what you've done. I don't care that you've stabbed me in the back. I don't care that I'm now your enemy. I love you. And I want you to come back to the simplicity of the gospel. And I'm willing to birth you again. I'm willing to go through all the trials and tribulations and difficulties that I went through to see you come to Christ. I'm willing to do that all again so that Christ would be formed in you. Not so that I will be formed in you. Not so that you'll come to me. Not so that you'll be drawn away to me. Paul says, I want to see Jesus in you. That was his heart. That was his goal. And you know what? That's what real ministry is. That's what real teaching does. It draws you closer to Jesus. It forms Jesus in you. The last thing in the world I want to do is draw you to myself. The last thing we want to do in worship is draw you to Stuart or to someone else. The last thing we want to do in any ministry is draw you to a person or draw you to a book or to a plan or to a program. We want Jesus formed in you so that His life will become real, so that you'll have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Not a facade. Not going through the motions. Not looking really cool. Not legalism. Not trying to approach God in your own efforts. Not being fake and phony. Putting on the happy face. No, we want Jesus in you. We want Jesus to be formed in you so that He can manifest Himself through you. And then all that stuff, all that stuff that people say you need to be doing will just be a natural byproduct. All the stuff that people say, yeah, you'll be doing that if you're really a Christian. You know, if you really love the Lord, then you'll be doing this, you know, and you'll be at church and you'll be reading the Bible and you'll be praying and you'll be sharing your faith and you'll be worshiping and you'll be giving money. And man, we're just trying to do all these things and we're reading our Bible, but we don't get anything out of it. And we're writing checks and we hate it, you know, to the penny. And we're reading books somebody told us to read and we're praying, you know, getting our time in and we're going through the laundry list and we're going to church, although we hate it and I hate the guy that teaches. I'm just going because somebody told me I have to go. And we're worshiping, you know, we're singing the songs, but I don't know what they mean and they sound stupid. And all the motions and all the stuff that people tell you to do. But then you come to a place where it's just like, you know what, I give up on all that. But here's the thing. If you let Jesus form in your heart, if you have a real relationship with Him, all of those things just become a natural byproduct. And you're not doing them to gain favor with God. You're doing them because you have favor with God. You're not doing them to have right position with God, you're doing them because you have right position with God. You're working from a place of relationship, not toward. It's a big difference.
working from a right relationship with God. And so, man, I want to get into the Word. I want to hear what this God that became like me, who took on human flesh, that John says, behold Him, touch Him, see Him. Relate to Him. Man, I want to hear about this God. He's not far away. He's not distant. He's right here. I want to get to know Him. I want to worship this God who rests His feet on the earth and yet became like me and hung on a cross for my sin. I want to worship that God. Man, I want to give to that God. He gave so much to me. I want to serve this Lord who served me, who got down on His hands and knees and washed His disciples' feet as an example to me. You see, Jesus relates to you and He wants you to relate to Him today. No more religion. No more facades. He wants a real relationship with the real you right where you're at. And you can have that. My little children from whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul says, man, I'd like to be with you. I'd really like to sit down and share this with you, but I had to write it. It's kind of like an email, text message. You know, it's kind of hard to get the, the flavor, right? You, gotta, you can put the little smiley face, you know, it means you're happy. You know, I'm not mad, I promise. I just reamed you out, but there's a little smiley face to make it all good. You know, it's hard to, to get the tone of somebody's voice. And Paul says, I really don't want to do that, but I have to. And Paul made every effort to connect with these people so that he could persuade them back to Jesus. And you know what? Persuasion. Is something we do on a daily basis. You may not think about it. But I bet you that before this day is over, you'll need to persuade somebody. Maybe it'll just be getting the kids to come in for dinner. Maybe it'll be an angry family member. Maybe it'll be a client. Maybe it will be a neighbor whose dog poops in your yard. You know, I don't know. But there's people that we persuade, and we have an opportunity to persuade them with the method of Paul by forming a common bond, by getting inside their head and connecting with them. And certainly in our evangelism, it'll make all the difference in the world. Because going out on the streets with a sandwich board that says, turn or burn, get right or get left, you know, homosexuals are going to hell, these types of things are very ineffective. And I just cringe when I see it. I cringe when I see people picketing against abortion. You know, what, what are you solving? You've got to get at the heart of the matter. You've got to get at somebody's heart. And you're not going to appeal to somebody's heart by throwing stuff at them or yelling at them or putting them down. You're going to get at their heart by getting down on your hands and knees and appealing to them with love as a brother, as a friend. Seeing the way they see things. 
walking in their shoes for a little while. And it makes all the difference in the world. People will begin to be persuaded by you when they see your heart. If you need prayer, we'll have an opportunity for you to be uh, prayed for up here. We'll have one of the elders and myself will be up here. And so if you'd like to come up during the closing song, um, we invite you to do that. Or you can wait until after, either way. But we'd love to pray with you. So why don't we stand together, you guys, and close in, in a final song.